Welcome back to another episode of the Daily Emerald Sports Desk Report. We're here with Nina. We're going to talk about um, women's volleyball and men's hockey first. If you can't tell, my voice is definitely affected by the smoke and the fires that are around the Eugene area right now, so pardon that. But let's get right into it, Nina. Take us through women's volleyball. You know, they, Last week you came on and talked about how this team has the potential to win the conference, and then they go on and lose to both Washington schools in five sets. So take us through the last week for the volleyball team. Yeah, so the Cougars handed them their first conference loss of the season. It was still to five sets and still very competitive. But the most important game that I want to highlight is the Washington game. Um, I, I'll talk about this in the short story that I'm writing for the end of the season, but I played volleyball in high school, like kind of like in big championship games and all that. And I honestly forgot what that felt like until I watched this Washington game. So the first two sets, like Oregon looked really bad. They were miscommunicating. They were bumping into each other. Um, it just wasn't sinking for them. Their timings were all off. And then the third set started out the same way. And then towards the end, they started to get a little bit of momentum and where it looked like it was just going to be a sweep. And then the Ducks took set three. And then they took set four after back and forth. There were a few like challenge calls and everything. And then when it came to set five, the Huskies went on a 5-0 run. It was five straight aces. Um, Brooke Nunviller had two back-to-back kills that got them finally on the board, but then the Huskies ended up going like 9-2. and two. And then so they called a timeout. The Ducks came back. They uh, saved two match points, and got, it was 14-12, and then they lost it on the final point. So it was an insane game. Um, I was I was sitting um, in the Fifth Street public alley. They had they were showing the game, and I was just like holding on to the desk the entire time. Like I really I, I re- like forgot to write down notes and everything just because I was so into the game. Um, I still do believe they are Pac-12 contenders. They usually would get swept by these teams. Like Washington and Washington State are usually up there. I think the fi- the fact that they're still fighting and they were able to come back at some points and push both games to five sets I think it's notable despite them losing yeah there's a lot to touch on there Nina thank you for uh filling us in it's very cool that you know we're in an era where you get to cover these games remotely and you're at the fifth street market watching a game and covering it that's really cool you're doing work from like a cool cool place you're able to cheer from the game there and then going back to the game itself the first time I I I covered a game that went into the fifth set I was confused when it ended (laughs) at 15 Mm -hmm. So, yeah, definitely that fifth set is tough to tough to compete in. And you don't see a lot of teams getting five aces in a row. So is Washington, like, known for being really good on those serves? or? I mean, they're definitely a competitive team. They are. They deserve to be ranked where they are, which I believe is around 12, 13 as of this week once they beat the Ducks. Um, but it's still not common to have five straight aces, especially at the just the collegiate level in general. But so, no, that was very shocking. So... These losses weren't unexpected, but they weren't predicted, I guess. Yeah. The Washington State game, I feel like Oregon had a better bet of coming out with a win. Washington, that was kind of expected, but it was expected as a sweep, I feel like. And they pushed it to five and then came back from a 9-2 and two deficit. Mm-hmm. All right. So what can we expect from this team moving forward then? I think um, so. They're heading to California now. I believe they're gonna, going to face USC this week. And I think it's just going to be... Um, coming back from that um they they're facing easier opponents than washington and washington state um so i think they'll just keep adding to the win column but i don't think we're going to really see those type of competition until the pac-12 schedule restarts again awesome any any other things you want to touch on with volleyball no i think that's everything awesome so let's move on to men's hockey uh their season started off uh i guess this past weekend 
there was a very cool, I guess, tradition that they're trying to start where you go to Rennie's and you you start the night there and then everybody gets shuttled over, over to the stadium. I don't know if you partook in that experience or heard anybody who did, you know, just take us through the whole experience of going to a men's hockey game because that is becoming like a really cool tradition to do at Oregon. Yeah, so I wasn't a part of any of the Rennie stuff, but they did have a whole section blocked out for Rennie's. Um, they were very loud and very cheerful. Um, but when I got there, it was absolutely freezing. People were showing up in like t-shirts and shorts and I was confused on why because I was wearing like a big puffer jacket and jeans and everything and I was still cold. So I don't know why they decided they wanted to wear that. Um, I have a few ideas. Yeah, yeah maybe. Um, and so they were just playing like music the entire time and the closer that it got to the puck drop, people started just going around the plexiglass and just banging on it. Um, Arizona State came out first, so obviously, like, all the boos and everything, they started to hit it louder. And then once the Ducks came out, that it was crazy in there. Um, I've never been to the ice rink before this season started, but I'm guessing it that's not a normal thing for them. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned before the podcast started that, you know, they kind of put this team together pretty recently. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so before their first game on Friday, the team was put together three days. So Wednesday, Tuesday, they had the final roster. Um, tryouts were a week before that. So they, they have some recruits. They I believe the majority recruit out of Canada, but then they also had open tryouts for everybody. They had the, the team finalized. They practiced for three days and then faced their first D1 opponent. Why do you think that is? Why do they put it together so abruptly? I think f- for this year it was because they hired their head coach so late. Um, Kyler Moore, I believe, was brought on a few weeks ago. Um, when I was talking to the GM, he mentioned that they didn't really know when they were going to announce it. They just knew that they had someone picked out. I think they were just waiting for like paperwork and everything, you know, just like typical stuff like that. So I think it was just the delay of having the head coach hired so late that the team was put together so late right before game. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, take us through. You went to Sunday's game and covered it. Take us through that game. How'd it go? Yeah. So so Saturday, the game before, they were... They lost, but it was a lot very high offensive scoring. Um, the final score was seven to six. This one wasn't as much. Arizona State kind of came out attacking right from the get go. There were a lot of penalties in the first quarter, and then towards the second quarter, towards the end, Arizona State got on the board first. Oregon, with fifty eight seconds to go, scored their first goal, and then when it came to the third period, Arizona State just kind of took off from there. Um, it was back-to-back goals. There were fights. Like, you could tell Oregon, they're getting under Oregon's skin. Um, they finally calmed down after a little bit of, like, a ref delay and then scored their second and final goal of the night. And then with the final eight seconds to go, they got into a huge fight with the goalie where um, he was actually, like, kicked out of the game. Wow. Yeah. Um, as, like, for me, like, as I was sitting there, I was like, just start the game. Like, there was no way that they were going to come back four goals in eight seconds. But it was it was a huge fight. Like, masks off, everything, and they just broke out. I assume they didn't come back. No, they didn't. <laughs> wow. That's the one thing about hockey that's, you know, interesting to watch is the fights. Yeah, well, I was sitting next to a few fans, like, right behind me, and they, like, they just knew that the fight was coming. And I was like, how did, how did you know if I, that a fight was going to come? And they're like, it's just hockey. It's just the thing that happens towards the end of the game. It's just a fight, which I've never really heard that before. Well, that's cool. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you guys can check out Nina's pieces on hockey and volleyball on the website. Thank you for uh, coming on today. Of course. Thank you. Okay. Well, now we're going to turn it to Elliot with women's soccer. Two more games for the Ducks this week. They got their first win in four games. Take us through this week. Both 1-0 finals. Uh, yeah. So 
They beat Utah on the road, one nothing on Thursday. Uh, the goal came from an own goal, kind of in the last fleeting minutes. Uh, but something cool, Leah Freeman got the uh, school record for shutouts with 18. She got seven saves on that game, including a PK, which is crazy, crazy impressive. And then they traveled over to Colorado, and they fought real hard, a real defensive battle, especially in the first half, but... Uh, they ended up giving up a PK in the 74th minute, I think. So as time was going out, just a sloppy a ball happened to hit an arm in the box off a free kick, and that gave them the, the penalty shot to, to put the nail in the coffin for the game. That seems like an awful way to lose. It's pretty much an accident. Yeah, that's uh, uh, Graham Abel talks about it a lot like towards the end of the game when either either team is searching for a goal. That's the more the more dangerous time because that's when you're either gonna pressure and get the goal or they're gonna counter you because you're pressing too hard and get the goal. So like those zero zero two one kind of situations, that's kind of when the goals start to happen. It's mm-hmm. always like the last so, fifteen minutes. It seems like a lot of these goals for you know Oregon and the teams are playing against uh, comes off of penalties or you know they save a lot of penalties even the backup goalkeeper saved the penalty when she was called into action why do you think there's so many penalties in in women's soccer uh i don't think it's just women's soccer i think i'd say it's soccer all around a lot of a lot of penalties come just that's just part of the game it's it's real physical and a lot of players are aware that penalties will get called so they tend to dive more mm. and that's how the stereotype of the flopping soccer player happens, Neymar, you know. Uh, so I just think that's part of the game, you know. You got to keep defensively minded and be smart with your, if you are going to commit fouls, where you're committing them. Is that something you as a reporter have ever, like, asked the coach about, like, diving in the box? Uh, no, not the coach. No, actually, I don't think I've asked anyone about that, but you you see a lot if you anyone watches any kind of professional soccer there's always there's always dives and there are a lot of tactical fouls so like a breakaway happens you'll see a defender just come and grab a forward's arm and pull him down mm-hmm. and that's just to stop the breakaway cuz worst case you get a yellow card and that yellow card just on you and you're not giving up a goal for the team it's like the take foul in basketball yes so it's very um tactical have you ever seen a professional soccer player being asked about the dive? Because I wonder if they admit to it. I, they probably do. I don't know off the top of my head, but like there, there are players that are known for diving, like Neymar, mm-hmm. uh, Raheem Sterling got one in the Euros. I forget who they were playing, but they helped. He helped England get to the finals because he got fouled with quotation marks in uh, in the box and earned a PK for the team. So, I mean, is it bad? Yes. But is it smart tactically? And do you still get a goal or at least a clear shot on goal regardless? Yes. So you got to kind of balance it out. Hmm. All right, back to Oregon soccer. What can we expect for the rest of the season for the team? Uh, so they uh, – did I talk about the Colorado game? A little bit. You touched okay. on it. Okay. Uh, so – the Ducks are sitting third from the bottom in the Pac-12, but it's re- with how early we are in the conference play, it's really if they win the next game, they could shoot up to the middle. Uh, they're playing <clears throat> Washington State on Friday away, 
And then after that, they are playing UCLA at home next Friday. So if they uh, pull wins together through that, then they could definitely see themselves jump up in the table. But, I mean, what they're lacking is, uh, I think, like the offensive power and pressure they need. Like either a number 10 role, like kind of center attacking mid that can directly come towards goal. Or they, they, what they really miss is like the identity and the goal scoring pressure of like Allie Cook, who transferred to UCLA last year or after last year. Uh, she was a top scorer because they've been outshot 104 to 21 in the last. Doesn't seem in like the Pac-12 like that. No, and if you if you don't have if the potential for a goal to get scored on the other team isn't there then the other team's just going to send all their players forward to attack you. So, if you don't have like if you don't have that offense, then your defense is going to get worked all day cuz there's no there's no threat of a goal coming. So, why would they defend as much? Uh yeah, they're they're outshot almost 5 to 1 right now in conference play. Mm. So, I think I think it's the young forwards Caitlin Picolba, Anjane Respass, they're they're real good. Respass is the top scorer, but they need to get that that more direct pressure onto goal and really figure out their offensive style and not have to lean so hard on Leah Freeman and the defense to to kind of pull them out of games, you mm-hmm. know. All right, well, is there anything else you want to touch on before I let you go? I don't think so, dude. All right, thank you so much, Elliot. Sweet, thank you. All right, we're moving on to football. We got Brady back again from last week. We're bringing on Jack. Uh, Jack got to cover the Arizona game, did it in Way Gamer on it. Jack, why don't you, before we get into talking about the recap, take us through that first experience doing your first game cover for an Oregon football game. Yeah, it was super exciting, man. Uh, I've always enjoyed watching football, and to do it as a job um, was even more fun. Yeah, so your gamer focused a lot on the running backs and the running back room. Right. Bucky Irving and Noah Whittington had big games. Uh, Whittington had the 55-yard rushing touchdown. Irving had a 20-yard rushing touchdown of his own. Just take us through, I guess, that angle and what you saw from those two guys. Uh, man, I saw two elite backs, two running back ones that are uh, definitely NFL caliber. The way the offensive line's blocking, it's clear that our run game is elite. And uh, just the collection of guys, including Jordan James, too. Um, I feel super confident in our running back room. Yeah, for sure. So one thing, and then we move on to Knicks too. Knicks is also having a great year, you know, running the ball. And that was something that I guess we hadn't prepared for. Or I guess I didn't watch a, a lot of him at Auburn, except for when the the Tigers beat yeah, the Ducks. Nineteen. Did Did you guys expect Knicks to be uh, this level of a running quarterback? Not just you know getting out of the pocket and scrambling and creating you know extra time with his feet, but to get downfield and he had an eighty yard run. In Austin Stadium. I mean, no, I don't think anyone anticipated him being quite as mobile as he is. But I think in general, nobody anticipated the running game being as good as it is. I mean, how were we feeling as Oregon fans last year when we had a solid run game, but then all of a sudden Travis Dye transfers, CJ Verdell declares for the draft, and we're going, who's who's going to run the ball? And to have the success that they've had this year with a bunch of guys that we didn't even really know who they were, transfers. plus this right transfers, plus this quarterback that. 
no, can run the ball, but was more known more known for his arm. Yeah. Um, to have the run game success that we've had this year, I think, has been arguably the most ple- most pleasant surprise of Ducks football this season. And yeah, Brady just said it. I mean, the running game has been the best, in my opinion, since Royce Freeman was here when he set all those records, which is really weird given the rotation because you went into the year, we were thinking, okay, Byron Cardwell, bell cow. And then maybe Whittington and Dollars get mixed in in the rotation a little bit. But it has been the Bucky Irving show. And I saw a tweet that I want to mention. I can't remember who it was by, but it it talked about the patience and the shiftiness of the running backs. Kind of that Le'Veon Bell trademark. Wait, don't, you know, rush it. Wait, sit behind. I mean, we have an amazing O-line, one of the best in the country. Wait for the holes to open up and then hit those holes hard. And they've been doing that and it's been paying dividends. So final score of this game was 49-22 Oregon. This is, you know, every single one they've had except for the one against Washington State has been a cover. And, like, this is not the Oregon we're used to. In the Washington State game, that was a little iffy on the cover, too, because it came down to the last second. But why do we see Oregon being able to cover like this? Good teams win, great teams cover. Dan Lanning is creating a great team in Eugene, and it's it's exciting to see. But this is a team that he has—Dan Lanning has made the statement that we are going to continue— to cram the ball, and we're going to keep going. We're going to ga- gas pedal down, right? We saw that with BYU. We've seen that with Washington State. Or not with, sorry, not with Washington, with Arizona. With We have these leads, and we're still going, going, going. And it's good to see, but it's also the depth of this team. Because how many games now have we seen Ty Thompson play? Two now, right? Maybe At three. least two. Yeah, I, th- I, mean, I think he played against I mean, BYU, too. He's throwing a pick right. every single one of them. Yes, he has. But, but, the, oh, fact that, but the fact that we are comfortable enough as fans with our these backups coming in the coaching staff is comfortable to put second string guys in and they're still covering is incredibly impressive for the depth of this program and the team that Dan Lanning is assembling right and I think that's something we haven't seen since I don't think we've seen this since maybe the um the Kelly um era honestly not to shade former coaching staffs but (laughs) we would either play up to competition or play down a competition and uh Right now, we've seen a lot of playing up, which has been really refreshing. Yeah, and you mentioned UCLA. I think we should talk about that briefly. Oregon Ducks are on a bye week this week, but they get UCLA next week. Going to be a top 15 matchup. What do we see in that game? Two quarterbacks that you know are slowly working their way up the Heisman watching chart. What, what, what do you think about that matchup? I'm just going to jump in and say I think they need to start stopping the run. Because you looked at the game against Arizona, yeah, it was a blowout, but the linebackers just look slow, which is really a big concern because I know a certain running back for USC who transferred, who we might be playing down the road, uh, who might be looking for a revenge game, and then Zach Charbonnet for UCLA, who is a dude. Uh, I mean, the linebacker, they rally well, but they really struggle to get to their zone in like the passing game, and it feels like every time a running back clears the D-line, it's a 15, 20-yard run or a house call at the very least. So tightening up the run... Uh, is a must. Yeah, the Bruins are one of the best running teams in the nation, and I agree with you. The defense will have to tighten up, you know, covering the run. A few other things they'll have to tighten up is mistakes. We saw uh, a dropped interception from TriQuest Bridges, and this is, you know, we've we've talked, I've talked ad nauseum about TriQuest Bridges and some of the, I guess, things he leaves to be desired on the field. I think one of the weird things is that he was recruited as a safety, but he plays cornerback. It seems like they, other other teams will target him most of the time. Dante Manning got onto the field uh, in this game. It was a blowout, but he got onto the field and he made you know a, a good play on on a third down. He he had a tackle for loss that stopped the first down. 
what do you think about this cornerback competition, I guess we could call it? And, uh, you know, Manning also, he was the guy who got hit with the targeting. But what do we think about Bridges and Manning? Uh, I think uh, it's great to have the competition. However, uh, I really think it's important that we figure out who our starting guys are before the UCLA game, hopefully by this bye week, because going into the UCLA game and then later on when we play USC, uh, it's imperative that we have these uh, uh, cornerbacks figured out and we know who's best, who's best in the slot, who should be outside, go on and on and on. USC is not on the schedule, sorry. Are you saying or, uh, in, a pack, in a potential Pac-12 championship? Possibly. Possibly, or and uh, when we play Utah too, it'll be really important for that matchup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can only rely on Christian Gonzalez, you know, for so long. They might not target his side ever. The teams really don't try to do that. Stanford tried a few times; it didn't really work out for them. But you have to have a, a solid cornerback on the other side. One thing I do want to mention, though, Jaleel Florence got into the game late and got an interception. I don't know if this is a sticky. You know, thing that we can see progress as the year as the year prolongs, and Florence has a role as the second corner. I don't think he's ready yet, but it is good to see that he has made strides as a player, and he's getting more playing time every game. It seems like, right? And uh, just a quick note on a uh, Christian Gonzalez. He's looking like an absolute shutdown corner. Uh, over his past games, he's allowed only nine catches on twenty-one targets for eighty-eight yards and a pick, along with three pass breakups. I was looking at a couple mock drafts today. Now, actually, uh, they have the New England Patriots at the 10 spot taking him at corner. Um, so just look out for him. It's an interesting mock as the Patriots never take any FBS guys. Right. <laughs> um, I want to circle back to we mentioned, we briefly mentioned Dante Manning's uh, targeting call. And this is the second time in the last four weeks, I think, when Oregon's had a kind of a controversial targeting call. DJ Johnson got hit with it a few weeks ago. And this this knocks out a significant player for a, a half of football in, in the next game. Anyways, just Jack, what did you see on that play, and what are we seeing, you know, nationwide from these targeting calls? Uh, well, on that play specifically, I saw uh, great instincts from Manning to blow up that screenplay. Uh, it was really great to see a corner with uh, instincts like that uh, being able to come down and tackle. Uh, it's not something you see super often from that position. Just what do you think about that targeting call? At, uh, you know, nationwide happening in the, in college football. Just what is what is happening with that? Jeez. Uh, personally, I'm really not a fan of it. I think uh, they need to change the rules. Uh, I'm particularly I don't like how uh, if the targeting uh, call occurs in the second half that they're suspended for the first half of the next game. Uh, I think that really needs to change, uh, Brady. Yeah. So so I, I did look it up. I can confirm if the foul occurs in the first half, they're done for the game. If it occurs in the second half, they're done for the game and the first half of the next game. Right. Okay, so Manning should be good for the first half of UCLA. Yeah, yeah. Manning, uh, I think he was called for targeting with five minutes left in the first half. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to touch on that you said, Jack, is that you know the, these penalties, they do have to happen, but I, I think it's kind of like interesting how the, the, the penalty or the punishment for a targeting penalty is uniform for all these penalties when DJ Johnson's call is different than other um, targeting calls like it wasn't as vicious of a hit yet he still gets the same punishment as as a vicious hit just what what do you think can be done to change this and make it a better rule on a small scale I'm really not sure I'd love to see the uh, NCAA take a second look at it I, d- I don't know what specifically um, could be changed Brady uh, so this is something that actually I've been pondering for a couple years now I would love to see targeting be able to be called based on intent and it's totally a gut call 
But there are some targeting plays that you look at where you're like, I mean, he was going for the knees, and, and the offensive player dropped their head, and they ran into the head. So, yeah, he hit him in the head, but he clearly wasn't trying to do anything. And then there are some plays you see where, like, that guy is trying to kill whoever's on the other side of the ball. And I think it would be really interesting for NCAA to be able to dictate suspensions based off intent because I can argue just as much that there are some plays that aren't called targeting where there's clear intent of trying to hurt the guy. And so while you can still make a, a statement with the 15 yards automatic first down, no matter if there's that contact contact or not, I'm good with that. I'm all about protecting the players. But I think as far as the suspension goes, being able to review that and look into that and go, is there, are they trying to hurt a player, right? One thing I, you know, in the NFL, they had that one year where they reviewed pass interference calls. <laughs> do you think that's something that could happen with targeting? Because I guess they do review targeting it. Targeting is reviewed. Yeah, but it's like, I don't know. It's it's kind of like iffy reviews for the teams to review. Or yeah. you mean? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of like I, I like what Brady said about kind of the nuance of the different calls, intent, and that's especially hard to judge when the game is so fast. Right. But at the end of the day, I think overcorrections are kind of a good thing. You know, player safety is priority number one, um, and I think it will correct itself over time, especially when they get this backlash off calls like this. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'd rather see a player miss a half than suffer long-term brain damage. So, I mean, the pendulum's going to swing, but I think over time, like we saw with pass interference, like we're probably going to see with roughing the passer, it's going to shift more towards the middle. Yeah, I agree with that. And we can touch on roughing the passer now. Um, this is more of an NFL issue, I guess, relevant relevancy. You know, this past week, we had two incidents, Grady Jarrett tackling Tom Brady and I guess kind of twisting him up. Uh, it it didn't really look like a vicious tackle and this tackle kind of decided the game it was third and four uh, Buccaneers were in their own territory up six points and if the Falcons get the stop they have a chance to get the ball back and drive to get a game-winning touchdown and Jerome Boger calls the roughing the passer effectively gives the Buccaneers a first down that ends the game um just what do we think about this initial incident and before we talk about the Chris Jones one I, th I think that with along with some pass interference things uh, the NFL needs to get rid of the hierarchy of the officials because there are some plays that, that it's been there have been reports of it where other referees will go, yeah, I for sure thought that was pass interference or I for sure thought that wasn't roughing the passer, but he that's his jurisdiction, so he gets that call. I think it would be interesting for those referees to be able to come together and go, hey, let's vote. <laughs> Who actually saw it? Let's vote. Okay, we had three people see it. Two of them said it's not ripping the passer. Yeah, it's a bogus call. We're not going to go with it. You know what I'd love to see? I'd love to see the refs have a press conference and the reporters ask, hey, why'd you make this call? What'd you see on the field at this certain point to make you make this call? Well, they, they did. I saw, one, oh, about, yeah? I saw yeah. one about the thing last night, Aaron. It's interesting you mentioned that. I have the quote from the Chris Jones one. Um, and before I, mention, before I say the quote, Chris Jones one for reference, uh, it was bef right before the second half, I uh, right before the first half was ending I believe uh, Chiefs were down by two possessions at this point uh, at home against the rival Raiders and Chris Jones sacked Derek Carr pretty lightly whatever you, you know the how it, how it ends they called roughing the passer the fans in Arrowhead Stadium were booing the refs for the next you know until halftime started and then once the teams came back out for the second half the booing didn't stop so they let the refs here after the game. Carl Schaefer's the head ref. He said uh, the quarterback was in the pocket and he's in a 
passing posture. He gets full protection of all the aspects of what he what we give the quarterback in a passing posture. So when he was tackled, my ruling was the defender landed on him with full body weight. The quarterback is protected from being tackled with full body weight. My ruling was roughing the passer for the reason he said via ESPN. And the issue was there was a fumble on the play, right? And it seemed like Jones was going for the ball. And while he was going for the ball, he kind of like rolled over on Carr. But once the he ball— He was no longer the passer. Right. But they were saying that— The, the ref is effectively saying that if Carr, Carr has to have a chance, a quarterback has to have a chance to protect themselves, regardless of if the ball is out. Once the ball is like definitively out and it's rolling, that's when it becomes a free ball. And he was saying that the quarterback hadn't had a chance to protect himself yet. How is one supposed to protect themselves from a 300-pound mass of a human being bearing down on them? Just ball up on oh. the ground. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's about yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, this is all because of that yeah. that call years ago, Aaron Rodgers, when he broke his collarbone. That's what all this stems from. Right. But, yeah, if we're talking about solutions, to get kind of back on that vein, you, uh, what about, you know how they bring in, like, Mike Pereira and Gene Steratore, the broadcasters? I love that they do. I think Those maybe guys having, maybe have having the best a, job ever. They exactly. sit in their basement all day watching games and get called in for these calls. It's maybe crazy. give the refs a pipeline to them. You know, some, like, you have an offensive mm-hmm. coordinator up in the press box yeah. to kind of – the challenges – you know, they go. They have a guy for that. They even have a get back coach these days. Give the refs some resources. Maybe yeah. it's an idea. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, the, to, to kind of stem off that, they have the for for targeting at least. It's it's a replay, right? And it's a video review, and a lot of it it goes to New York and it goes to another ref. I would love to see all of those calls now be a committee, not a person. I'd love that to be three people looking at it, three people mm-hmm. in 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 New York in the studio looking at that targeting call and going. You're no, you're no. All right, we're, we're voting no. Or and I think you could do the same thing now with roughing the passer too, because I I'm very confident when I say that if you send that clip to New York, that that call doesn't get made. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go back to uh, some Oregon football talk before we finish it off. Brady, you had the chance to um, write a, kind of like a Pac-12 power rankings this week. Usually you do the game preview, but Oregon's on a bye week, so just take us through that piece. What were some of the highlights? What are some of the teams you wanted to, I guess, touch on? I know you have all 12 in there, but what are some of those teams that stand out to you, I guess, midway through the season? Well, I think that there's different tiers of the Pac-12, right? In, in the first tier, you've got, in, in, my, in my ranking, number one, UCLA. They're not ranked as high as USC. They're undefeated, and they do have two ranked wins. Um, Dorian Thompson-Robinson obviously is very, very agile, and Chip Kelly we know to be a very creative head coach, and that combination has been just lethal this year for UCLA and for this Bruins offense, and he can run the ball. Zach uh, Charbonnet, Bruins are undefeated when he rushes for over 100 yards. This is a UCLA offense that when they can run the ball, they will beat you, and I think that goes back to what we were saying about the Oregon run defense needing to get better. Number two, USC. USC hasn't inherently done anything wrong this year. They've beaten everyone they've played. They they had a bit of a stumble with Oregon State, but they still beat them. But the only reason that they're not higher is they don't have a ranked win. So this this week, going down to Utah, which we know to be a really, really tough place to play in, Utah proves it year in and year out that winning at Rice-Eccles Stadium is a tough task. I want to see more from USC. Number three, Oregon. They've come miles since the Georgia game. It's been better. The BYU game was awesome, but you still have that ugly that ugly loss under your belt. Number four, Utah. Lost a couple games, but those are fair games to lose. At Florida, tricky SEC opponent. That's fair. That's going to happen. And 
at UCLA, which we just mentioned is a really good offense. But do you guys think that Utah is still legit? Is Utah still relevant? Definitely still relevant. You know, any Pac-12 team that's ranked is relevant because you don't see a lot of them always. Low bar. Yeah. Hmm. I, I mean, exactly. Low bar. The Florida game, I mean, you mentioned it. It was tough spot. They lost on the last play of the game on a pick. And I, I think everybody underestimated UCLA. Mm-hmm. So to to say that, oh, Utah lost to UCLA, I feel like it's more on UCLA is a good team than Utah is a bad team. Yeah. So. And so that in the next tier, I have the good teams that have stumbled a little bit. And so I have five Washington State, six Washington, seven Oregon State. And for me, Washington State and Oregon State are very similar with good teams that have conference losses, but to quality opponents. I mean, Oregon State's two conference losses are to USC and Utah. Those are two games that you can afford to lose. Um, Washington State's two conference losses. Obviously, we know Oregon and this last week at USC. And they gave USC more trouble than than a lot of people anticipated. So these are teams that I still think are good. They're stumbling a little bit in the Pac-12. Obviously, having two conference losses already takes you out of contention for the Pac-12 championship. But I still think that we could see both of these teams in a bowl game down the road. And then Washington... Washington, still a solid team. They beat number 11 Michigan State, but, I mean, we know now that Michigan State and Mel Tucker are frauds. Um, But losing to UCLA, forgivable, but a tough loss in the desert last week at Arizona State. Question for your good tier. What do you think separates uh, Washington and Washington State? Not losing to Arizona State. (laughs) Anything specific? Not particularly. Washington, probably the Washington State defense. Yeah. Because the Washington offense has been very good. Penix has looked very, very good mm. this year. Um, but the Washington State defense has been a little bit better. And Penix uh, did get hurt, but he should be playing this weekend versus Arizona. Right. Which, which I anticipate the Huskies. Can, I, that game. can I ask where you have Colorado on this? Um, I could, I could put him at thirteen. <laughs> I would. Um, I put him at twelve. No, I, they're not I, worthy of a mention. I, I was going through. ESPN has that cool little thing where you can click on every game and it shows the little percentage wheel of what they're anticipating. Right. Um, Colorado has less than a twenty percent chance in every game left on their schedule, which sounds like a low number, but it is higher than the thirteen point four points per game that they're scoring this year. <laughs> so Brady's very good at making <laughs> these comparisons between two random things that have no correlation. <laughs> right. Um, so then at the bottom of the, at the, the last tier, eight, Arizona State, which we were talking about actually before this. Arizona State is a team that seems to screw up someone's season. They love playing spoiler. Yeah, they play spoiler every year. They, they are the Pac-12 spoiler, They and they did it this year with Washington. Um, nine, Cal, the, probably the most forgettable team in the Pac-12. Uh, Ten, Arizona, I wrote, you beat Colorado but we need to see more to know that you're not just a basketball school. 11, Stanford. They almost had Oregon State beat this week, but a last, like, Hail Mary, Minneapolis miracle kind of type play. Gave the Beavers a win in that one. And then um, the only winless team in FBS at the very bottom. Mm. And uh, just to point out, uh, Stanford has an interesting matchup this weekend versus Notre Dame in South Bend, so we'll see what happens there. And Notre Dame, a team that just beat BYU in Vegas. Right, right. I feel like uh, Oregon State is this year's kind of like 21-22 Broncos where they're a quarterback <laughs> away from being a, t- a great team. Uh, I'm so, I'm We've so, got a couple Broncos fans here, that's, that's why. We were talking Broncos before the, before the show started. Um, you know, 
It's 4.49. I think if we got into Broncos talk, we'd be here until 5.49 at least. So we're Maybe until 7 off. if we had the same kind of clock management. <laughs> <laughs> that was uncalled for. Football podcast needs to I end. I, I'd hit the, my, my arm on the table. I had to go on IR. <laughs> Nathaniel Hackett hate. So that's it for today. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in.